This is Mythos, and I am the creator, Nicole Schmidt. This podcast is a storytelling journey through world folklore. Here, you will experience fresh interpretations of traditional narratives, mainly with a darker edge. The aim of Mythos is to ignite a passion for the lore of generations past by telling the stories with a sense of magic, as if they were entirely real. With brief context and analysis in the introductions, the main focus is the retelling of the stories themselves. Welcome to Folklorica Slavica, the series in which we will explore the folkloric landscape of the Slavic world. Here we will encounter the witches, demons and spirits that haunt the forests, lakes, mountains, urban spaces and even bathhouses of Russia, Poland, Ukraine, the Czech Republic, Slovakia and more. Hello, I'm Mark Norman. I'm a folklore researcher and author, and the creator and host of the Folklore Podcast. If you haven't heard it, there are two seasons of episodes and more available on our website at thefolklorepodcast.com. Traditionally, before the digital age, and even before the development of recording information on paper or parchment, Storytelling was vital, both for passing on customs and beliefs, and also for understanding one's culture and surroundings. Folklore is all about symbolism, and how we code and decode meaning in the symbols that we find around us. Even in today's modern world, folklore is still a very important part of understanding who we are, and our place in society and storytelling is still a vital part of that field. My own work on the Folklore Podcast, which examines folklore traditions and customs from a scholarly perspective, and the presentations of the folk tales here on Mythos, are therefore intrinsically linked. Nicole, the creator of Mythos, has contributed tales to the Folklore Podcast, and so I'm delighted to have the opportunity to return the favour and introduce this episode. Today on Mythos, Nicole takes you deep into the Slavic forests with some tales and background on the figure of Baba Yaga. Variously a mythical wise woman, a witch, a forest spirit or a leader of others in the spirit realm, Baba Yaga's legacy of lore comes from mixed cultural groups within Eastern Europe and as such a fantastic and horrifying collection of motifs have assembled around the character. Flying through the air in a magical mortar and pestle, she leaves her forest hut, which sits astride chicken legs, its keyhole filled with sharp teeth, and its land surrounded by a fence of human bones, topped with skulls. These tropes have evidently gathered together from different sources, and, in fact, even the etymology of the name Baba Yaga cannot be fixed for certain. Baba is certainly derived from babushka, and is probably a babble term meaning grandmother, or more distinctly an older married woman of a lowly social class. Yaga is more difficult to fix down, but has mixed meanings of relevance in various Slavic languages, 
Translating, for example, as horror, anger, witch, or dryad. So, what does all this mean? What would the Slavic cultures have understood by the symbol of Baba Yaga? And what meaning would they have derived from the character? Here's Nicole with some horrifying tales of Baba Yaga and her crone kin that may help to shed more light on this enigmatic character. Story 1. Baba Yaga and the Russian Taiga As the great boreal forest breathed out plutonian breath, exhaling mist as thick as dragon steam, the princess cradled her infant sons in her lap and gazed out the great palace's windows, the thick stone walls feeling like mere paper compared to the brooding bulk of the taiga, the arboreal giantess of the great north. And as the princess gazed at the spearheaded pines rising from the oily darkness, she traced the contours of the birth branding upon her infant son's foreheads, marks of those touched by the underworld. As she watched a chthonic blackness devour the contours of the forest, she absent-mindedly traced the straight lines and sharp angles of the stars and the sensual curves of the moons on the little babe's foreheads. So strange to be marked so, to be born witch-branded with moons and stars on one's forehead, as if carved by the, the spirit finger of one of those millions of ancestors existing brightly within the Milky Way. So bright were the spirits of the dead, and yet their realm was blackness itself, a sort of oil illumination that could only proceed from the upside down of the underworld. And since their birth, the palace had been filled with whispering of hushed fear and awe, low voices like those used at either a christening or a funeral. For some said they were marked for an ill purpose, that an evil eye gazed upon them with terrible envy, a crone gaze full of an angry loneliness. Indeed, there is something about the forest tonight, about that lonely mist, something heavy, and ancient, and familiar to the princess. Her mind flashed with memory of standing in the doorway of her humble hovel, full of young girl curiosity and child fear, as moonlight glinted off iron teeth, set in a time canyon face, sagging with millennia. Then, a rustling in blackness, and then, emerging from the mist breath of the underworld, well, her memory only permitted fragments now. The dappled moonlight and shadow of the forest edge, spotlighting ancient canyon skin, breasts stretched by eons, laying flat against the stomach, a crone piecemealed by eternal forces, forces of the dead. She remembered the rushing wind as Baba flew towards her, and that massive stone bull that seemed laughable before but then had made her mind vague with oppressive terror. For milling about the bottom of the mortar were figures, 
impish, but slick with the oil illumination of the underworld, and the pestle an unholy paddle pushing the mortar with an invisible energy. But now, as eventide crawled below the horizon, the princess traced her fingers along the strange contours of the stars and moon upon the infant foreheads, a tattooed sorcery on soft baby skin, and a portent gurgled in her belly. Now it was the same as all those years ago, moonlight glinting off iron teeth, the time canyon face sagging with millennia, breasts so stretched they must have fed all the clamoring witch-milk-hungry denizens of hellish realms. But this time, the princess stood in front of the window, her little ones now in their cribs behind her, and she waited with a stoic intuition, knowing payment was due, feeling the hungry clamoring of retribution in the impish glee of mortar-bearing demons, an emaciated crone depleted by dealings with the underworld. The princess stood and waited, and not with a bang, but a whimper. She and her little ones disappeared. The prince was no coward, and ventured into the eternal shaded green of the taiga, night's death shroud already tightly woven around the great northern forest. The spruces, pines, and larches stood erect and indifferent to his father's pain and his husband's agony, for he had truly loved the princess, that peasant forest wanderer who had radiated the uncompromising beauty of the taiga and whose aura was tinged by ancient magic. And though when he had found her wandering in the forest, and though he had known even then that she bore the marks of the Three-Nine Kingdom, and though she had whispered chthonic secrets in her sleep, a singing, chanting whisper of secrets she had learned from Koziaka Lesa, the witch-mistress of the forest, though he knew she would only bring him sorrow, the prince had lifted her, starving and hollow-eyed, onto his horse. And now, he stood before the fire-blackened wooden hut, perched on devilish chicken legs, crenulated by centuries of arctic blasts of wind and hell-fired sorcery. As he approached the emaciated dwelling, the chicken feet scuttled with seed-pecking hunger, sensing him with a bird-like skittishness, scrambling to get the entrance of the hut out of his view. And within this tiny hovel, he heard muffled baby wails, somehow impossibly distant, as if the infants were squealing deep within a stone cavern. There was terror and loneliness within those cries, all the terror and loneliness of death itself. And the prince cursed himself for his cowardice, for as he gazed about him at the time-weathered human skulls mounted on fence posts, cracked and mutilated beyond recognition. As his eyes darted between the glowing red eyes of those skulls, he felt all heroic impulses seized and devoured by gut fear. Yet, when he heard another terrified wail, the father impulse rose in his throat and he chanted the formula taught to him by his wife, who had anticipated their abduction. And as the hut's chicken legs shuffled with grotesque skittering, the prince heard a great nostril inhale and the moist smacking of lips, full of carnivorous hunger. 
the prince went towards the hut at a crawling pace, and as he did, the hungry inhaling quickened. He reached the hut, was so close he could see that the warped wood just outside the door was greased-looking, slick and littered with the scraps one would give a dog, whitish gristle and fleshy-looking bits, and again the nostril inhale and the moist smacking of lips, but this time a voice sharp and grated like teeth scraping on rock called out, "'What do you want, brave prince?' And then a throaty laugh, muffled, as if she had pursed her lips and was trying to cover her mockery with false restraint. And just as he peered into the dark portal of a door, something shifted. A squealing wail again. The prince grabbed the edge of the flesh-fouled ledge and hoisted himself up, standing before the door. And the prince's gut jolted at the sight of a massive slab of iron. And then another and then another. And once the prince's eyes had adjusted to the chthonic blackness, he realized that lips surrounded. What he now realized were not just iron slabs, but teeth. And those lips were cracked and swollen and fouled with mealy. Smaller skittering drew his attention from this grinning mouth and into the recesses of the hut, where crawling reptiles and glowing-eyed rats and bizarre ethereal slitherings of other spirit beings made an animal clamor amongst mounds of paper-thin flesh, clinging to the bones that speared out of the body in places. And all of these pieces suddenly formed into a whole. Baba Yaga. The one sentence the prince had to force out of his terror-stricken throat was agony. I want my wife and children, Baba. They belong to me, and I will fight for them. A shrill giggle carried out on the wet hexail that blew over the prince. That cannot be, I fear, dear prince, replied Baba, whose voice was a dark, hollow cacophony, as if she used the souls of the underworld to power her speech. The princess owes me a great debt. I rescued her for the petty tyrant of a bitch stepmother, taught her to live in freedom in our great taiga, taught her the secrets that would make her free and powerful. And how does she repay me? By peering into the only secrets I ever forbade her, and unleashing powers that would destroy this world. And now, my very bones are so brittle from the exertion of reining them in, that they break through my skin. No, she will stay here and serve me, for the silly, selfish desire to stick her pathetic nose where it didn't belong. The prince pleaded and conjoled. He offered Baba Yaga everything he had, and her response was only crone laughter full of disdain, as deep and mocking as the yawning underworld. Then, for the first time, the princess's voice broke through the infant pleadings. Koziakalesa, please, begged the princess. I am your payment. Let my sons go. After all, before my foolish mistake, you were my mother forest, my baba filled with eons of wisdom. How many nights did we spend laying on our backs and listening to the whispering of the ancestors traveling down to us from the fey-lit Milky Way? I'm sorry, baba, but do not forget our happy days in the taiga. Give me this one boon, and let my sons go. 
the prince stood very still, seeing wetness in the great black eyes that now appeared in the doorway. Very well, little one, very well. The prince could have pleaded for the princess, but he knew that he would lose them all if he did. So now, he ran towards the edge of the taiga, clutching the little ones to his chest, and a painful black hollowness ate at his gut as he heard his wife's weeping slowly fading behind him, until the great forest seemed to swallow her voice in one gulp, leaving only silence in the world and his heart. Story 2. Yetsi Baba's Grove, Slovakia Amidst the dizzying grandeur of the Tatras Mountains, a hunter is enveloped by primeval forest, its eldritch nature vibrating in the great wide silence, an ancientness that is vertigo-inducing. Gripping his rifle, he chooses a mossy path to muffle his footfall, a path avoided by other villagers, who have claimed strange feelings of panic, a discombobulated anxiety, a sense that the creaking, groaning trees were corralling them. The hunter did not consciously disregard this. In actual fact, he was intent on a large hare he had seen darting that way, and was more focused on getting new furs for his children for the cold winter ahead than he was on the mounting shrillness, which was felt in the gut rather than heard. And it wasn't until he reached the grove that he realized his grave error. The absolute zero, the thick, wavering nothing that was her cave. It breathed out the mind-shattering cold of celestial spheres, drove the hunter's mind towards ethereal spaces that muddled the brain, made the mind one with chthonic mud, and a knotted, ancient, weeping birch stood in the middle of the grove, the thin branches jerking as if blown by erratic winds. Leaping movement broke the giddy hypnosis, and the hunter lifted his gun, yet for all his skill and experience, found it nearly impossible to take aim, for the hare moved erratically as if moon-drunk, a twitching discombobulation in its clownish leaps. The hunter could only stare aghast, as the hare now bounced around in circles, boxing at the air. It might have been funny, if not for the disoriented terror in the poor beast's eyes, a stampeding fear trampling its poor nerves. And some unknown impulse drove the hare towards that stygian cavern, and the stampeding fear within the poor creature would then make it dart away again. As the hare engaged in this frantic yo-yoing, its disoriented animal terror so very full of pathos, the hunter noticed a movement in that raven-black, gaping mouth of a cave. A slinking sort of movement. An impression of mucus, slicked tread that made the hunter feel slightly nauseous. And at this, the hare simply stopped. Its terror palpable and seeming to beg for mercy. 
so the hunter raised his rifle, took aim, and pulled the trigger. The hare seemed to sink with a sigh, its limp body laying directly in front of the cave. The hunter then felt a hungry pause within the cave, and a sort of boggy slurp, hungry and dripping in saliva. And as the hunter stood frigid, he could see a murky shape shimmying within, crawling and clamoring to mouth cave, where dying sunlight and the obsidian void of the cave formed a boundary. The crawling, shimmying shape then stopped suddenly at that borderland, the nearness of the slobbering being adding another dimension of frenzy and fear to the grove. The hunter then only caught glimpses as an emaciated hand reached out of the cave, a brief glimpse of a hag nose slick with snot, the nostrils like pots of frog spawn. Then, as the hand gripped the dead hair, a mouth shadowed yet discernible, moist with the anticipation of satiation. Something came over the hunter, an affronted anger, a sense of injustice, for he had been hunting for days, and would be damned if this snotty crone would take precious fur from his little ones. So he bounded forward and grabbed the hare's legs, a tug of war ensuing between this grown man and this cave witch of devilish strength. The hare's body was pulled back and forth, back and forth, across the boundary between Twilight Grove and Nightshade Cave. Finally, the hunter shrieked and bellowed, threatening to shoot the old bitch with one of nine nails from a horseshoe. Yes, iron for the crone if she did not yield his game. The hunter then fell backwards as the hare was released, and the liver-spotted hand withdrew into the cave, leaving a trail of snail slime behind, and then the backwards shimmying and the shuffle of gravel as Yetsi Baba clearly made her retreat. Indeed, the hunter knew who he had encountered, and with that knowledge, he snatched up the hare and bounded out of the grove. For all the hunter knew, the hare should be decomposing by now. He had lost count of the number of times the sun had made its path across the blue sphere of the sky. He had lost count of the number of times he had made his way upstream, so very certain he was walking into the eastern glow of the rising sun, to his humble cabin, to his little ones, to home, only to suddenly step onto the mossy path, and to feel a whimper in his heart as his eyes trailed along the path, slowly, not wanting to know the truth, but feeling his sight drawn to it. The grove, the cave, the black mouth almost cackling. And this time, he did not turn the other way. He did not attempt to run in the opposite direction. He knew very well that his intimate knowledge of those woods, those mountains, would do him no good. Like uncountable times before, he would end up back at the mossy path, with the weeping birch and the cave at the end. So, this time, as he neared the grove, the weeping birch, always before him, pathos in the whimpering writhing of those whip thin branches, and bowls like the opaque eyes of rustic witches. 
and at its root feet was the hare, now limp and lean from vermin feasting. Confusion and loss and the ultimate disorientation of death, these consumed him as he threw the hare into the cave. Then he lay down and wept, his last thought of his children, knowing that the rotting offering did not assuage her anger. Story 3. The Vermin Witch, Ukraine As two village babas made their way down a forest path, crowded by gnarled, elderly oaks, they walked with scuttling, darting-eyed watchfulness, for they had just emerged from a pine forest, the tall trees disconcerting, like charmed, petrified snakes moving in the music of the wind. And they felt no better, taking hurried, mincing steps into this grove of lindens, trees normally full of benevolence, full of deep-sigh comfort in the delicate, spade-shaped leaves, almost like hearts. But now, the linden trees, their bright nature were darkened by twilight. Then the old women crossed themselves as they tiptoed past a mature linden, with shade-darkened nooks and crannies, and a trunk like a squat elderly amphibian. Oh, that this linden's protective elegance could be so liver-spotted, so waterlogged by centuries of stinging winter rains. Indeed, the very being of this tree was limp, sagging, depleted, as if feasted upon by the soggy earth. And the old women felt, in this agoo-ridden grove, a presence something mean and fish-eyed, something that reminded them of how sleepy lakes suck at mud banks with lapping, mouthing sounds. This presence was glazed and malarial and sickly. But before they could shuffle along, something shifted in a hole in that same tree. At ground level, and first, the Babas caught a glimpse of corpsey dead eyes, and that glazed, malarial, sickly feeling intensified, as if a blanket of unnatural humidity had descended upon the grove. And the old women felt their limbs weighed down with mud-drenched hair. For now, a lumbering, scaleless, slick-skinned mass of amphibious something, a creature the size of a fox, almost oozed out of the hole. What looked like a gaping mouth was clotted with patches of white mucus, like frog eggs gathered around weed stalks in lake. And that presence, glazed and malarial and sickly, became so intense that the old women felt nauseous. Yet so very strange was this being that they felt compelled to study it with a morbid curiosity. The squat, hunched, speckled back, the downtrodden, downturned grimace of a mouth, amphibiously slick. And realizing it was a toad, a toad the size of a fox, sent them fleeing with mincing grandmotherly steps out of the grove and down the forest path towards Kiev. 
Surely, this frog spawn demon would sniff their holy intention of pilgrimage and remain in his squelch-ridding grove. But they still felt it, the strange sense of blanketing humidity, the glazed, malarial, sickly feeling, gut-level anxiety, a drowning feeling. And when the two Babas turned, they saw it, the toad lumbering down the path after them, and they shuddered and hurried at the sight of its uncanny movements. It crawled rather than hopped, and with a quickness that must be demon-breathed. Now, one of the old women lost her breath, and much to her horror, she fell behind her companion, who did not notice that she had to stop and catch her breath. And much to out-of-breath Baba's surprise, the toad crawled with elastic movements right past her. It was clearly after her companion. And the old women then wept, some hours later, to see Holy Sanctuary, not far now, was a respite from that soul-swallowing toad, for now they could see the bell towers and golden domes of Kiev, Pecherslavra, the monastery of the caves. Oh, how the twilight sky and the beautiful bell towers, tolling an echoing tune, beckoned to their wearied souls. Oh, how it all reminded them of celestial spheres, of the sense of being lifted with airy wings above this boggy, mud-sucking presence that had pursued them for hours. Rather, it pursued one of them. And this Baba, the pursued Baba, her kerchief was soaked in sweat and her soul soaked in a drowning terror. Something felt anemic about her, as if she had been feasted upon. Her companion shuddered, and without a word, they hurried towards the heart and center of their pilgrimage. The toad-haunted Baba woke to find herself sleeping in the courtyard of the monastery. Perhaps the torment of the nightmares had set her to sleepwalking, nightmares in which she was drowning in a pit of white mucousy frog spawn and a goo-ridden algae. And in these dreams, she was up to her neck and sinking, feeling a terrible loneliness. Whatever the reason, she now laid helpless and exposed in the courtyard, and she felt crawling and slithering and nibbling all over her body. She shuddered and began to flail and writhe, for when her eyes finally adjusted to the darkness, she saw a row of slimy leeches on her arms, and writhing snakes winding around her legs, and croaking frogs hopping down her torso, and all of them, all of them were sucking and gnawing at her. And at her cries, the other pilgrims in the monastery rushed out and tried to chase the vermin away with sticks. But they would only return, as if the terrified Baba were a patch of mud or scummy pond water. So intense was their attraction. Finally, the priest came out and kneeled beside her, praying that the demon-haunted vermin would depart. Then, Baba confessed. She told her story and said, Father, I was so lonely in my little cottage, so very empty and alone, and when I saw mothers with daughters and fathers with sons showering kisses on their Babas, 
I felt so angry that I wanted them all to die. And when I saw ducklings waddling after their mothers, I wanted them to die as well. In my lonely bitterness, I wanted all people to be as forsaken as me, a useless old woman with a dry womb who nobody wants. I cursed them and hid myself away. This helped a bit. But then, the heavens themselves mocked my loneliness. In the black lonely sky of night, I saw the morning star, the sister of the sun, and the evening star, the sister of the moon, and I envied that sisterhood. I saw that beautiful star Polaris and saw its connection to all things in the heavens. That axis of the sky, Polaris, was connected to all the beauty of the celestial sphere, and I envied that connection. And then, on one clear night, I saw a stretch of stars so brilliant it makes one's heart ache with the beauty of it. I knew that what I was seeing was the way of the ancestors. All the souls of our past kin glowing so beautifully, and their distance and their coldness made me hate them, and I envied them. So I whispered angry, hateful incantations at the sky, and I whispered them until my throat ached, until I saw balls of light detach from that heavenly avenue and come closer and closer. Then I grasped those stars in my hand, hating them, hating everything, and I put them in a jar and hid them away. I was so lonely, Father, I wanted the ancestors close to me, and yet I hated them, for they could not speak to me, or kiss me, or call me Baba. Forgive me, Father, even now I feel my bitterness leaving me. And to this day, the pilgrims speak of that moment in awe, for the squelching, mucousy vermin had slowly retreated in slithering, crawling masses as Baba purged her soul. Story 4 the blood-sucking Yagababa, Northeast Siberia. The shaman's chants stretched themselves with desperate longing over the naked, shivering larches and the ice-laden pines, over a stark winter landscape that had a crone-like sharpness, and all those present at the great gathering of the clans, what they called the Suktul, gripped their relic bones pieces of the precious bodies of shamans of past generations, thrusting their own verbal longing into the black sky in time with the shaman's chance. But the sky stared back at them with an indifference they had never known before. The wind this year tasted of arctic witchery and froze the eyes together, the black ice full of cackling hag treachery and the cold was like nothing they had ever known. Even the oldest of them said they felt a stare, an evil eye, bearing down on them from the sky and the trees. And as they gathered around the womb warmth of the blazing fire and concentrated on the shaman's chants, they imagined the words as birds, as lovely as the silence of natural winters, 
not the unnatural spitting curse it was this winter. The chant took flight like huskies rushing over the landscape or a fisherman gliding on a frozen lake. And the bird words tried ever so hard to reach that blessed ancestral realm, a bitsi, tried to reach the ears of smiling ancestors, as beautifully illuminate as the very stars, yet clad in the familiar furs of the living. Yet the clan's very spirit, their very corporate being sensed something unusual, as an unnatural sharp wind breathed curses upon them, bit them with jagged ice teeth, and mocked them with an eldritch cackle. The shaman's words were not reaching Abitsi, and all present felt a pulsating confusion, a silent cacophony of concern in the very heavens. The fire is not strong enough, the shaman said. Our, re- our words cannot reach the ancestors. The clan immediately peered into the taiga, that great forest, every crevice devoured by vampiric blackness, and all shivered as the forest growled an arctic exhale, and in that lone wolf loneliness, in that sad darkness, as black as coal, in the melancholy remnants of a failed fire, they felt her. They felt her covetous emaciation, knew that her vampiric hunger was feeding on the warmth and energy of the world. They knew that somewhere deep in that forest, she lurched and glided and howled, her skinny body as bright as moonlight in the gloom. The Princess Marfita stood. I will go to her. The shaman nodded, and before the princess departed, the clan blessed her, gave her provisions, and gripped their shaman's bones, telling her retreating back that indeed the kin of Abitsi were watching over her, shouting fire and sun across the eons to help her on her way. But Princess Marfita knew better than that. The fire was not strong enough. Something was feeding on the world, and the spirits of fire and sun and hunting and earth and water would wither and fade if she did not get the fire they needed from her. And as the clan watched the princess enter the darkness, the darkness seemed to tremble with hungry anticipation. It wasn't long before Marfita caught glimpses of a loping dull whiteness, slightly yellowed by age, darting between pine trunks. By all the ancestors, Marfita thought, her movements are like the lumbering shoulder blades of a starved wolf. For Marfita felt the ice-cold envy, the vampiric hunger radiate from that figure, and knew who she was. And then, what stepped out onto the forest path in front of Marfita? Well, first the princess felt a sucking all around her, a feasting on all life and energy, and that jealous hunger became an infinite space, a biting, snapping wall between her and the kin of Abitsi. And as she walked closer towards the princess, Marfita willed herself to look and saw a hag whose emaciation was all concave stomach and ribs and bones that looked as if they might tear through the paper-thin skin at any moment. By the ancestors, her every bone was a stare, and as if reading her mind, 
the hag squatted down on the path and whispered words like shards of ice, and instantly a blazing fire appeared, and the hag mockingly warmed her hands. Yagababa, Marita called, squaring her shoulders. My clan needs fire. A sharp voice interrupted her. For your fire is not strong enough to reach across the heavens and cannot carry your words to Abitsi. The hag grunted and shook her head. Yes, Baba, Marfita responded with a gentleness that even surprised her. That fire comes at a great cost, Yaga Baba said. I know, Marfita said, and as she approached Baba, she began to strip off her furs. Marfita's gorge rose, and her head became racked with creeping unconsciousness. She forced herself to not look down, yet even that horrible sucking sound could not be avoided. It filled the empty blackness around her, and even the knowledge that the biting, snapping wall between her and a beatsy was lessening was only a small comfort. Slurp, suck, slurp, suck. Marfita, though, was a hunter and a princess. She knew that all fear must be seen and known. Slurp, suck, slurp, suck. The shock of seeing her now flattened, withered breast made her whimper made her gorge rise near to vomiting, and the hungry suckling seemed to echo in the lonely spaces of the forest. Marfita then wept, for the dry, cracked top of Yaga's head, covered with thin wisps of hair, bobbed gently, almost in mockery, of the innocent eagerness of a suckling babe. And suddenly the sucking ceased, and Marfita was left alone in the forest, with a wet face and ancient-looking, withered breast drooping to her waist, even though she was a young princess. And in her hand was now a torch, blazing with a fire full of voices. And with heavy steps, Marfita made her way back to her clan, her very being drained by the evil sucking of covetous hag hunger. And many hours later, as brave Marfita lay on furs in front of a fire, her skin being rubbed vigorously by her women kin, the shaman laid the torch upon the wood, and his chants stretched themselves with desperate longing over the naked, shivering larches and the ice-laden pines over a stark winter landscape that had a crone-like sharpness, and all those present at the suktul gripped their relic bones." A silent sigh ran through the clan, for this time the bird words soared with the energetic yelp of the husky and the assured elegance of the fisherman gliding on a frozen lake, and the bird words reached the blessed Abitsi, the smiling ancestors as beautifully illuminate as the very stars, yet clad in the familiar furs of the living. But Marfita lay dying and her brothers roused themselves to confront Yagababa, for the cold-hearted crone could have given their sister the healing waters. With kin love and fire anger, they ran straight into the forest. And so many years later, the clan still speaks of how those waters glowed with starlight and how a sort of bird song audible only in the gut seemed to resonate from the princess's throat after she drank 
the waters of life, the healing waters. The story of her restoration and of how her sons grew strong from her breast milk, the story has continued from generation to generation. Yet, the brothers remained silent for many years about their encounter with Yaga Baba. They spoke in whispered fragments over blazing fires, and only when they were old men did they feel enough distance to finally tell their story. And children and grandchildren felt bone-deep terror at, again, horrors that previously could only be come by in fragments. The brothers told of a raging mass of ancient skin, now bulbous and jiggling, rushing towards them on all fours on the forest path. The animal strength of that fat Baba and her biting, cold grip as she wrestled two grown men. And then animal screeching as one brother brought an axe down on her neck, her headless body then crawling like an injured animal into the darkness of the forest undergrowth. Then a bulbous creature crawling on limp legs, screeching at them to follow. Yaga Baba's severed head, propelled by blood-soaked braids, led them with raging, impotent anger to the pool of healing waters. And when the brothers could no longer endure her soul-cutting ice words, they broke her head to pieces, skull fragments quivering with rage. In a distant land far surpassing the nine kingdoms of imagination, there was a girl named Nicole Schmidt whose grandfather took her on his knee and instilled in her a hunger for storytelling. In honor of Charles Henderson, my grandfather, I've been working on this labor of narrative love for well over a year. My intent is to bring to life that same immediacy, the same earnest involvement in the story I had all those years ago when my grandfather whipped up spontaneous tales. I also want to connect you with the stories of generations past, with the stories produced by those lost to history, and as Angela Carter so eloquently put it, with the vivid, raw narratives of the anonymous poor whose labor formed our world. Want to join in on this vision? Would you like to encourage and support me in churning out more stories? For sure, with a full-time job, I need the extra oomph of knowing you all are getting something out of it. You can support me on Patreon and become a part of that inner circle of storytelling enthusiasts whose creative partnership will help shape the future content of Mythos. You can also like my Mythos podcast page on Facebook and head over to mythospodcast.com to read more about my inspiration and rationale for particular stories. And if you want inspiration for your own creative efforts or just want to do some more imaginative frolicking, there's also suggestions for novels, stories, and films. Or you're just wanting more storytelling. Well, the rest of the Lore Britannia series is there for you to explore. Everything from phantom dogs prowling the moors to water witches haunting stagnant ponds. Happy listening.